Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. It's Friday. Let's talk about food. In a minute, we'll hear from Michelle Zahner, also known for her indie rock band Japanese Breakfast, about her memoir, Crying in H Mart, which is about food and grief and family. But first, something a little lighter to start. NPR's Ari Shapiro samples some food and drink in this interview with Cecily Wong. She's the co-author of a book called Gastro Obscura, A Food Adventurer's Guide, about different foods from around the world that might not be familiar to food normies like me. But the book isn't done in that corny way that exoticizes the foods or where they come from. And Ari asks Wong how she avoided that trope. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Caramelized cheese, sea pineapples, and tree tumors are just a few of the delicacies in the new book Gastro Obscura, a food adventurer's guide. It's from the folks at Atlas Obscura who've always been interested in taking people off the beaten path. And Cecily Wong is one of the co-authors. Good to have you here. Awesome to be here. This book has more than a thousand entries from every corner of the world, including Antarctica. How did you research and find the stories of all these foods? It took three years and we just kind of moved continent by continent and then within that country by country. And we just started deep diving. But also part of what makes Gastro Obscura really special is that we have this huge community of users who write in every day and tell us, I ate this really incredible food. You should check it out. I either grew up with it or I went and visited this place And so half of the entries in this book came from that process. Then the other half came from my co-author Dylan and I just going wild for about three years. Okay. You have sent me a few things that are delicious and they're right in front of me right now. And let's talk about them. Um, First, I've got this vacuum packed container of dried fruit, kind of lumpy and mushy. What am I looking at here? You are looking at something called hoshigaki. What are hoshigaki? It's a persimmon from Japan. It's a dried persimmon. In the book, we call it a pampered persimmon because it has just a very, very nice life. Yeah, the book says these dried persimmons are massaged nearly every day. Do you think you can taste the difference? I I hope so. Every day for a month. I would love that. Getting massaged every day for a month. Absolutely. To be one of these persimmons. They start as a fresh persimmon and then they're peeled by hand, but they leave the stem and then the stem is strung up and they're dried in the open air for 30 days and then they're massaged every day. Well, I feel very honored to have them in front of me. I'm going to open this vacuum sealed package and give one a try. It smells like caramel and honey and tropical fruit. Ooh. And a little bit like pumpkin-y almost. Okay, give a taste. It tastes autumnal. I, I expect to see next to the pumpkin spice latte and the caramel apple mocha, the hoshigaki persimmon <laughs> drink at Starbucks. It's perfect. Okay, you've also sent a bottle that an adult had to sign for when it was delivered have been given permission to drink during work hours for this. Very. This bottle 
Beautiful bottle. It says it's called King's Ginger. What am I looking at here? Truly regal. Yes, the bottle is is beautiful and gives away a little bit of the history, which is that this is a royal liquor. It was created for King Edward VII. He had just taken the throne after his mother Victoria died. He he loved going on these joy rides. He had a he had a motor car that didn't have a top, and he would be exposed to all this weather. And the royal physician got super concerned that he was going to get sick. So his solution was to create the King's Ginger, which is what we're about to drink in order to warm King Edward VII while he drove. He would put it in his driving flask and it's brandy, but it has honey and ginger and lemon, which have that revivifying vital property. And King Edward loved it. And this became a smash hit for the royals. All right. Do you have a bottle of it there? I sure do. Shall we open up? Absolutely. The cork pops very satisfyingly in like this old school way. We love that on the radio. Okay, Cecily, uh, bottoms up. Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yes. Totally. Just like soda, ice, slice of lime. It's almost got like a dark and stormy thing going on. Absolutely. It smells very botanical. And then you taste it. It's got this kind of velvety honey and lemon thing going on. Why don't more people know about this? They really should. They haven't actually been making it that long for non-royals. It's been about 10 years. So Oh, lucky us. Exactly. It's a it's a good time to be not royal. All right. And now we have a treat that is almost magical. I'm so excited about this. Little canister of berries. What are they? This is the main event. These are miracle berries. <laughs> this is the main event. <laughs> the other two were just like the opening acts. A little warm-up. These are fruits that are native to West Africa. Their miraculous property is that if you eat them, it makes all sour things taste sweet. Uh, let's give this a try. The berry itself doesn't have a lot of flavor. Exactly. It's super mild. The ones that we're eating are freeze-dried, so they have that kind of slight crunchiness. Now, on the side of the container, it says chew for 30 seconds, tasting the pulp. Then it says swallow berry and enjoy new flavors. I think it's almost time to enjoy new flavors. Well... What new flavors do you have in front of you, Cecily? I have a pickle and I have a lemon. What a coincidence. I have a pickle and I have a lemon too. (laughs) That is great news. Uh, I think this cucumber gave its life for a good cause. Should we see what it tastes like while we're flavor tripping on Miracle Berries? Yes. Okay. Okay. It tastes like a sweet pickle. Yeah. It it tastes (laughs) like we put a little too much sugar in our pickle. Way too much sugar. Mm -hmm. You ready to try the lemon? Yes. Here we go. Okay. Oh, yeah. Mm. That is like a lemon candy. Oh, my God. That is so good. I feel like we could sell this. Totally. Yum. Wow. It's like a juicy lemon head. Yes. The way these things work is incredible. But beyond the kind of party trick aspect of it, what's the story behind these berries? So these have been used in in West Africa for centuries. They would eat them exactly the way we're doing, except for for something that they wanted to taste better that was sour. So sour palm wine is an example. They would eat these berries and drink the wine. It would taste a whole lot better. Huh. The idea of what makes a food weird or interesting is entirely subjective. Entirely. Dishes that seem normal to one person might seem strange to a foreigner. And so as you wrote this, how did you avoid the trap of exoticizing foods that are unusual to one person, but just a part of another's daily life. 
Absolutely. You know, we had our own rubric. I'm actually coming to this book as a fiction writer. I write mostly novels. And so I'm into the storytelling aspect of, of all these foods. Some of the most delightful foods are not because they are objectively so strange, but because they have these incredible histories behind them that we don't, that we don't know about. Were there any entries that as you were editing and going through this, you thought, "Mm, this feels a bit to look at that weird thing that those other people eat. Absolutely. I always point to bugs. People are really squirmish about about eating bugs and how weird that is. Everyone is eating bugs. We're one of the few cultures that aren't eating bugs. And so the bugs that are in the book, they're in the book because they have something really fascinating about them. If we looked at a food and said, it's just unappetizing, that's not what's in this book. I think we're celebrating the weirdness of food in this book because it's all weird. Cecily Wong, she is co-author with Dylan Thuris of Gastro Obscura, a food adventurer's guide. Thank you for talking with us about it and for sending me these delicious things to try. Thank you so much. That was super fun. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Food YouTube personalities have such a hold over us sometimes. If you've got a favorite one you follow, I'd bet you sometimes go to yourself, huh, that's a different knife than they usually use, or you know, something like that. In this interview about her memoir, Crying in H Mart, Michelle Zahner brings up how this one food YouTuber really helped connect her to Korean cooking, and by extension to her late mother. Here she is talking with NPR's Ari Shapiro. Crying in H Mart is a memoir of food and family. The author, Michelle Zahner, is a successful musician who performs as Japanese breakfast. She grew up with a white American father and a Korean mother. After her mother died of cancer in 2014, Zahner writes she would stand in the aisles of the Korean grocery store chain H Mart. Sobbing near the dry goods, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy? Throughout the book, food serves as a form of connection, a way of caring for someone who's ill and remembering them after they're gone. I think for my mom, every time I ate in a very Korean way, it sort of reminded her, like, that's my kid. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that there might be, like, some fear that um, raising a kid in America, they might lose that part of their heritage. And so I think that it gave my mom great comfort and joy and pride when she saw her daughter eating food that she grew up eating. Your mother had a bunch of distinctive idioms, and one of them was about crying. What was it that she would say? My mom would frequently tell me to save your tears for when your mother dies. What did she mean by that? I mean, I think that she meant, you know, um, don't cry over anything petty, you know, like save it for something real happens. And in my family, the worst thing that could ever happen, honestly, was was my mother passing away, I think. And so when her death became a reality, how did you think about that idiom? Well, it was actually interesting, you know, I thought it, I, I had thought it was so 
cruel uh, growing up, and I and I obviously hated to hear it. And as I got older, and I and I started speaking more with with other members of our family, I I learned that that was actually something that her mother had said to her growing up, uh, and I I had never known that that was something that she had been told until after she passed away. So after she was gone, tell us about how food helped you process her loss. I think it helped me process her loss in many ways. Um, one was this real sort of psychological undoing of this sense of failure that I had. You know, when she was sick, there was a real role reversal that I had anticipating, especially as an only child, having to take on my whole life. And a big part of that was this real desire to nourish her and to prepare these meals from her to help her while she was going through chemotherapy. Um, and I discovered, you know, there was a lot about Korean food, particularly the type of meals that you eat when you're sick that I, that I didn't know. Uh, there was a woman that came to live with us for some time that sort of prepared these meals. And I always felt this real shame that I wasn't able to do that. And I think after she passed away, part of learning how to cook Korean food was, um, sort of like, undoing that in myself psychologically um, and forgiving myself for that. There was a YouTuber who kind of like helped you on your journey of learning how to cook Korean food. And as I read the book, I wondered if you had ever reached out to her, if she has any idea of the role she played in kind of helping you connect to these recipes. Oh, yes. Um, I had my sort of like Korean Julie and Julia moment uh, with this, <laughs> right, um, totally. this like Korean YouTube blogger named Mangchi, who if you don't know, you should definitely check out. She is just like the most magnetic and effervescent uh, cooking show host. And she completely de- demystified a lot of these, you know, Korean dishes that I'd grown up with, but never learned how to cook. And um, I actually saw her do a Q&A in New York a few years ago. And I, I gave her the essay that sort of started this whole piece. And and she reached out to me and I actually um, went to her apartment for my 30th birthday. And she made oh, me wow. and she made me uh, like bulgogi and I got to try her kimchi. She bought me a little cake. And she's been oh, just like, so yeah, she's been, you know, so generous um, and caring. That's so great. I, she's in her 60s. And so I wonder if in some way you feel like you now have a maternal figure helping you navigate Korean cooking, having lost your mother who, you know, would have been playing this role had she been around. Yeah, I mean, she's honestly been like a sort of digital guardian angel for me. There were so many things when I was watching her videos and um, that really reminded me of my mother and, and, and brought me such great comfort from the way that she peels an Asian pear with this giant knife towards her in like one long strip. And I also yeah. love the way that she pronounces zucchini, just like my mom, where she, she says zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is not a rock memoir per se, but you're best known as a musician. You record as Japanese Breakfast. And you write in this book about one of your early inspirations, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And the front woman, Karen O, oh, is also half Korean. Tell us about what she represented to you as an up-and-coming songwriter. I mean, she just changed my whole world. I mean, it was the first time, you know, I mean, even just being a woman in in the rock scene was such a rarity. Um, and to see that level of showmanship in any performer was just astounding. And then to later learn that this woman was also half Korean I mean, it was like seeing myself for the first time. It gave me um, the sense that if she can do it, it's something I can do. 
but I also remember having this like real confrontation with the scarcity mentality and having this real thought of, oh, is, if she's a half Korean woman, then there's already an Asian woman in rock music. The job of half no Korean longer, female right. rocker has been filled. We are no longer accepting applications, that sort of which thing. Is, which is absurd right. because, like, what, you know, little white boy, like, sees, <laughs> right. sees Mick Jagger and is like, well, I guess my, my spot is taken. Yeah. You know? Your real breakthrough success came after your mother's death. And you describe in this book playing a show in Seoul, the city where she grew up. What did that mean to you? I mean, it was tremendous. It was one of those things where, like, at this point, my success has exceeded my ambitions or whatever I thought could maybe happen in my wildest dreams. I never thought I would be able to play in Seoul, the city where my mother was raised and and I was born and um, I was able to perform for my aunt. Uh, And, yeah, it was just such a moving full circle moment where, you know, my mom, you know, there's actually a photo of her uh, in her 20s on my album, on my first album, Psychopomp, that we toured there with. And I just remember having this really, you know, tremendous moment watching all of these Korean kids carry out her face on the square record, like out into the streets of Seoul and, you know, just knowing like she would never believe it, but also having to feel in my heart that that she knows in some way. Michelle Zahner's new book is Crying in H Mart. Thank you for talking with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Megan Lim and edited by Petra Mayer, Megan Sullivan, and Taylor Burney. Show elements this week were produced and edited by Emma Peasley, Melissa Gray, Mathoni Maturi, Eric McDaniel, Barton Girdwood, Elena Moore, Amy Isaacson, Elena Burnett, Justine Kennan, and Noah Caldwell. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm knows your business is your life. State Farm agents are small business owners, too, so they know what it takes. They can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.